Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, October 22, 2018, is a Sandra and Richard Rippey lecture on American history. In this conversation, award-winning authors and historians Joseph J. Ellis and Stacey Schiff examine America's founders, their vision for the new nation, and how the government they created in the 18th century has endured. Good evening. Joe, um, let's just dive right in. You talk about this book as a um, round-trip ticket to the 18th century. Um, the place and where... Yeah, well, yeah, and right, back, round-trip, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, some of us would prefer maybe to stay there. Um, the place where all of our seminal convictions and texts originate, and about how we've fallen out of touch with many of those and mangled many of the rest. So let's just dive right in with the most vexed issue and the arguably most opaque founder, Thomas Jefferson, um, he has more to say about slavery than any other founding father. Um, he's full of self-delusions and inconsistencies. At one point, you essentially implied that he might need psychiatric attention. Um, Boy, you really read the book, did didn't you? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I did do that. Um, yeah. I, on the one hand, he says no one is, on earth is more disposed to end slavery than is he. And on the other, he says that slavery should be extended to the Western territories. So um, what did he really mean? Uh, you wrote a whole book on this. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I did. I did a book question. on Jefferson. And, um, well, there is a story uh, that some of the people out there probably know. When um, Kennedy was president, and early in its presidency, Jackie arranged this dinner party in which they had multiple Nobel Prize-winning scientists and writers, and then for, for music, they had Pablo Casals. And... Um, and Kennedy got up at the end and said, this might be the greatest collection of talent ever to inhabit this room with the single possible exception when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> I've imagined Trump saying the single exception is when I <laughs> um, So there are a lot of windows through which to see Jefferson, and many of them are flattering. If you want to look at freedom of speech, you want to look at separation of church and state, you want to look at lyricism as a writer, only Lincoln is better among presidents. But if you look through race and slavery, you're going to be disappointed. And he is the most resonant figure in American history on what is the American original sin. On the one hand, he wrote the magic words of American history that begin, we hold these truths to be inevitable. Uh, Self-evident? Self-evident, not inevitable. Yes. That's good, though. Well, actually, what he first wrote was, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And your guy, Franklin, changed it to self-evident. Um, and those are the words, and that is the idea that is the centerpiece of the liberal tradition that will eventually become the abolitionist movement that will eventually end slavery. And Jefferson believed him. But he didn't, there's a kind of rarefied quality to Jefferson's mind. It, it exists in some 
area levitating above. It's the reason why I built Monticello on a mountain. Um, and it never affected his ownership of slaves. And what will block him from being a major force for anti-slavery, and he is in the first half of his career among the more progressives, among the Virginia planters to be sure, he plants, well, he, he tries to put in the declaration a whole paragraph essentially blaming slavery and the slave trade on George III. I'm glad you got to that, because it's possibly the worst paragraph Thomas Jefferson ever wrote. I say that, too, yeah. It's completely incomprehensible. It is. It's because he's struggling how to say it. But, like, think about this. It doesn't make much sense to say George III is responsible for slavery. But it makes revolutionary sense. If you're blaming everything else on George III, this is a great opportunity to get rid of slavery. We might as well blame it all on him, too. Um, they cut it. They cut the whole thing. But what he also does in the Declaration that's less noticeable, the Lockean trinity is life, liberty, and property. He changes property on his own to pursuit of happiness. Now, he steals that idea from George Mason, who's writing the same stuff down in in uh, Williamsburg, the Virginia Constitution. But by changing property to pursuit of happiness, he eliminates the slave owner's argument that you cannot take their property from them without their consent. And that, in other words, by changing that, it becomes an anti-slavery statement that's not easily recognizable. But the second half of his life, he says, I can't take a lead in the anti-slavery movement because, and less than until, we figure out what to do with the ex-slaves once they're freed, because they can't stay here, because blacks and whites cannot live together, because if they do, and he knows about this on an intimate basis, they will interact sexually and create a mongrel race, which will be a dilution of the pure Anglo-Saxon race. He holds true to this view till the day he dies. So you have him summed up as saying blacks could be assimilated into American society only when they ceased appearing to be black. Yeah, see, one of the things we forget is the founders are pre-Darwin and they're pre-Mendel, okay? They thought that blacks were black because they lived along the equator in Africa. And if you brought them over here, gradually they would change color. And you get these letters from people saying, yeah, there's a couple guys up in New Jersey that are already white now. <laughs> and it's probably because they are the product of interactions between whites and blacks. But that um, Jefferson, there's a horrible letter from the Jefferson writes early in his presidency. Somebody asks him about racial mixture. And he says that in the first crossing, which would be half and half, they're still black. The second crossing, when they're three quarters, they're still black. The third crossing, he says, the blood clears. And then they're white. 
All of his children by Sally Hemings were seven-eighths white. And most of them could pass as white. So he freed them, as he promised Sally he would, although in the, in the, in the what they call the farm book, it says ran away. Two of them ran away. They just walked away. And um, they could be free because they look white. They could pass. And I don't want to go off on this too much, but that this book attempts to connect now and then. And the reason I'm focusing on Jefferson in this way is I think that we're now aware, in a way that we haven't been for some time, that there's a significant portion of the American populace that's never accepted the central principles of the civil rights movement. And that under the current president, for the first time since the civil rights movement, the race card can be played up rather than played down, which is the way it usually gets played. And the closer we get to 2045, which is when whites will become a minority, the more we're vulnerable to demagogues. That we thought when we elected a Barack Obama, some did, I didn't, but some did, we were ending a post-racial age. We should have expected just the opposite, which is what we got. Now you tell us. Now you tell, yeah. It's a backlash moment that every step, you know, King said that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. On a racial basis, it does, it, that's true, but it's like this. And we're in one of these. Since we're on, since we're on, on the subject, do you want to talk about why you picked James Baldwin as the yeah. sort of modern interlocutor with Jefferson? There were three black writers I found really impressive. One was um, W.E.B. Du Bois, and especially what he thinks of Reconstruction. The other is a um, sociologist, now retired at Harvard now, William Julius Wilson, and then Baldwin. Baldwin's a weird guy to pick. He's been dead and gone for a long time, but um, in part because Baldwin was a black gay guy, and he lived for most of his years, latter years, in Paris. He inhabits different persona and identities, and he's more comfortable floating back and forth. And Baldwin understood, Baldwin understood the importance of race and history almost as much as Faulkner, right after Faulkner. And he said that whites believe that the development of a democracy on a continent-sized nation was a major challenge and achievement. But they didn't understand the much greater challenge would be to fold black, he said black men, he meant black people, into that democracy. He's right. He's right. Um, that's the big challenge. Nobody else has ever done that before in a nation this size. It is now not just black, it's multiracial. Um, and that's, you know, I'm optimistic in the long run because the arc of the moral universe does 
tend towards justice. I'm apprehensive in the short run. I think we're going to have a difficult time over the next few decades. And, um, and my job is to tell us what we're up against. This is one area the founders offer an example that's, well, realistic. The founders were visionary in so many ways. I'll give you three. They understood, as no one else up till then had, that you could create a nation-sized republic. They understood that you could separate church and state and not fall apart. They understood that you could have governments with multiple sovereignties. If Britain had thought that, we would have never had the American Revolution. Let's talk about another thing that... But wait, 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 wait. Okay. They could oh, I not I imagine... I to interrupt you. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's, I told her to interrupt me all the time. Go ahead, okay. Go yeah. ahead. finish what you're going to say. The, yeah, the, the, the bottom line here is that the one thing they could not envision is a multiracial society. Uh, they couldn't imagine. Um, and neither could Lincoln. Neither could Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Beecher Stowe has an appendix on Uncle Tom's Cabin saying, well, once we free him, this is where we're going to send him. Okay? Um, Lincoln gathers together the free blacks in the North in 1863, including Frederick Douglass, and says, get ready. This is right after Gettysburg, because when it ends and we win, we've got to figure out where you should go. And he's already got a commission looking at Panama to explore Panama as a possible location. He, doesn't, he never has to act on any of this because, fortunately, he gets killed. Fortunately, let's go, let's go back to um, the pursuit of happiness. Um, John Adams is perhaps alone in anticipating what we today would call income inequality. Um, he's worried about oligarchy. He's very prophetic about the fact that a gilded age could one day um, materialize. He could see the wealthy essentially wresting power from everybody else. So what does he base that on? He's the only one, right, who actually yeah, sees yeah, that is. in the offing. He's a contrarian. I love him for that. <laughs> and I mean, he's my favorite guy. You know this. And um, she's doing a book on Sam Adams now. And I was, you know, Sam at least got a beer named after him, you know? And, um, and if you actually, if you Google him, it's the first thing that comes know, up. I, yeah. it's like, I testified with McCulloch, which is 12 years ago or 15 years ago at the sub congressional subcommittee for a memorial or monument to Adams. I thought I was really convincing. You know, of course, nothing has happened. And, but I said, here's what I said. I said, what we want is, first of all, have John, Abigail, and John Quincy. We get family values. The conservatives will support this. And then we want the memorial built on the tidal basin in such a place so that, it, given the time of day and the angle of the sun, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson can take turns casting shadows over each other's society. <laughs> I thought it was a great idea, but it doesn't seem to have happened. But that um, because Jefferson spoke for the generation on this issue, namely that we had achieved a middle-class society, this was, and this is what Tocqueville will describe in 1831, 35, when he writes 35, and that once you do away with primogeniture and entail, once you eliminate feudal tradition, then the gates are open, humankind is free to pursue its happiness, and they will do so in such a way that will create this kind of robust middle-class society. And that described, like New England at that time, didn't really describe the South, as a matter of fact. But that, 
And Adams said no, that while men and women are equal in terms of being human beings and having equal rights, they're not equal in terms of their ability, and they're not equal in terms of the advantages they bring into the world. Like he and Abigail went to this foundling hospital in Paris and saw these kids and said, you know, all these kids have no chance compared to our kids. Um, and that the history of Europe shows that, they, that the few end up coming to dominate over the many. Do you think it's because he's more exposed to Europe, in fact, that he goes there? Because, I mean, arguably Jefferson would have had the same reaction. People said that at the time when they were criticizing him for this, and especially his, his view of presidential power, which they thought to be monarchical, and he's been corrupted by France. But he had said the same thing in the Massachusetts Constitution, which he wrote in 1779 before he went to, to Paris. Now, um, he, he is a Puritan, secular Puritan, um, who doesn't believe in the better angels of our nature, and who believes that human beings will enter, that if allowed to pursue their happiness, the, the strong will destroy the weak. The, the, the wealthy will use their wealth to aggrandize and to gain power, and that oligarchies lead to plutocracies. And plutocracies then perpetuate their control over the government. At the time he said that, that sounded crazy. crazy. By the time of the late 19th century, it was, the, it was the future. And guess what? It's now. We now have the highest degree of income inequality of any advanced democracy in the world. The country that invented the middle class is no longer a middle class society, economically. Um, and no matter what the statistics tell you about uh, GDP, new jobs, 50% of the populace is living lives of what Thoreau called quiet desperation, trying to make a go of it. Um, and Adam saw this, and he doesn't have an answer. I was going to say, he doesn't have a solution. He doesn't does have he? a solution. Um, but he does tell you one thing that's not a solution, supply-side economics, or trickle-down that that's just going to make the problem worse. And it has. And if you look at the most recent legislation passed by the Republicans, and I voted for Republicans at various times, Romney for the governor of Massachusetts and Baker, the current governor. My wife is a card-carrying, or was until Trump, uh, Republican. Um, what did I start to say? If you look at... I lost... said economics. And how it's not working? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I if you look at the most recent tax bill, we added between 1.5 and 1.9 trillion. They, they disagree about what it's going to be, but the highest estimate is 1.9 trillion. Let's think about this. We add 1.9 trillion to the national debt. So much for Chamber of Commerce fiscal responsibility. 82% of that 1.5 to 9 trillion goes to the top 1%. 82%. This is turning into a really uplifting evening. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, and this is embedded, okay? This is embedded. This is not going away. The Koch brothers and other billionaires have spent the last 40 years investing in, in various forms to provide, you know, and uh, Jane Mayer's book on this, Dark Money, is beyond, you know, comparison in terms of, of analysis of it. It's not going away. And I don't have an answer either. If Adams couldn't have come up with an answer, certainly Joe Ellis is not going to come up with an answer. I'm just going to, I mean, my one answer is on CNN, they won't do this on Fox, but CNN, MSNBC, you know how when you're watching the news and they roll the weather or the sports scores? Instead, whenever a politician's talking about a bill, run the amount of money he got from the related corporations for that particular issue, okay? You can do this easily. They can have a, you know, they can just do this right away. And, you know, like, so when McConnell gets up and says something about the environment, this is how he got, how much he has from the coal industry. So we're going to depend on someone in this audience to devise an app for that tonight, right? Oh, that should be easy. We have a lot of smart people. We could, this is, it's not hard to do that. Let's go to um, one of the big surprises of the book for me, which is how much of a role little Jimmy Madison plays. He's all over the place. He is. Um, and let's go immediately, actually, to something that I think is a language issue as much as anything else, which is what happens with the Second Amendment. Oh. Um, where did, how, how did an obligation become a right and how did we so thoroughly misconstrue this piece of verbiage? Yeah, I had a guy in Atlanta last two years ago come up. I mean, he didn't come up. He was in the audience, and I was talking about the Second Amendment. I hadn't written this yet, but all right. and, uh, and I said, you don't have Second Amendment rights. You have Scalia rights. That upset him. And he goes like this, and he's carrying. And that's, you know, and I mean, is it, I don't think he was going to shoot me or anything like that. But I said... Sir, listen, can we agree? This is where we're going to try to have dialogue. Dialogue. This is, I'm on, I mean, argument is the answer, okay? We've we got to be able to argue about this stuff. I agree that you have a right to carry a gun. And you agree that I have a right not to get shot. Now, let's negotiate, Okay. And I think we could come out with restrictions on automatic weapons and longer, you know, and just what we'd expect. But when that came up after one of the early massacres in Connecticut, 89 percent of people were in favor of longer you know, background checks, no uh, military grade weapons. It never even came up. The House is in bed with the NRA and they'll primary. But the Second Amendment. Talk about what the founders really meant. What do you think bear arms means? The right to bear arms. It means the right to carry a weapon in the army. It doesn't mean the right to own a gun. The Second Amendment was written by Madison in the spring of 1789. It was in response to a series of recommended amendments from the states in the ratification process that were reluctantly joining the union. All the Ten Amendments, which, by the way, don't get called the Bill of Rights until FDR. Nobody calls it the Bill of Rights in the 18th century. They call it Ten Amendments. By the way, Madison didn't believe they were worth anything. Madison thought that, that they were just paper things, and, that, and he had spent the entire ratification process in the Federalist Papers saying, we don't need a Bill of Rights. Why didn't they do a Bill of Rights? 
in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia because they were tired and they wanted to go home. And they, and at any rate, they should have done a Bill of Rights because that becomes a source of criticism in the, in the, in the ratification process. Four states submit recommended amend, the same recommendment against a standing army. Nobody recommends the right to own a gun because guess what? Nobody's ever risked, ever taken their guns away before. The British never did that. Um, if you go to the NRA uh, museum, they got a quote from Patrick Henry. Except it's a quote of something Patrick Henry never said. That's right. It, but you know, he and they say they'll take away they'll take away your guns. Now I'm going to use a bad word here, but I'm, it's in quotation. Okay, Are we okay on this? What he didn't say they'll take away your guns. He said they'll take away your niggers. At any rate, when they debated this in the two, in the House and the Senate, the whole debate was about whether we were going to allow national defense to be in the hands of the militia or a federal army. And this was designed to assure that it would be a militia. Okay. When it's passed, 11 states ratify it. Rhode Island's obviously recalcitrant, doesn't do anything back then. So is North Carolina. They passed the Militia Act. You know what the Militia Act says? Every able-bodied white male between the ages of 18 and 49 are required to purchase a musket and an outfit. An outfit means cartridge belt belt, and boots and stuff. The real meaning of the Second Amendment is not that you have a right to own a gun, but mandatory national service, which I'm in favor of, by the way. Um, But if you try to tell that to people parts of Atlanta, at least, they won't believe you. Um, I do an analysis of Scalia's decision, D.C. versus Heller, which I'm sure the the ghost of of Scalia is looking up there spitting at me. But it's a joke. Just to inoculate yourself against that, do you want to mention the Warren Burger, the great Warren Burger line about the Second Amendment? Remind me what he, he said, said. Something like it's the greatest fraud. Fraud ever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This, in the early 70s, he said, you know, when the NRA first began to propagandize on this. And what happened with the Second Amendment is the same thing that happened in Brown versus Board of Education. Now, we love Brown versus Board of Education. Other people love the Second Amendment. But the NAACP worked really hard to get us to 1954. The NRA worked very hard to get us to 2008 in the Heller decision. By the time they got there, the Republican Party had long since committed itself to the belief that their Second Amendment is the right to, to, to uh, carry a weapon. Um, and so it was already, it's, it, in some ways, it wasn't original. See, if you do an originalist interpretation of the Second Amendment, you have to conclude that you don't have any right to carry anything. Um, and that was actually the view of one of the people in the, in the court, the minority view. And, um, and that's an originalist interpretation. But the whole originalist ideology is, and this would be true of Mr. Kavanaugh, J- Judge Kavanaugh, and Judge Gorsuch, Alito, um, Roberts. Well, the Roberts is, 
Watch this. Roberts is going to go to the center because he's going to try to. But anyway, the, I think that originalism, if you talk to legal scholars, even the people that are critical of, of originalism say, well, originalism is, is just, you know, it's questionable. No, it's utterly preposterous. My sense is that the chapter on jurisprudence is the chapter you felt most passionately about. <laughs> I begin to see that might have been true. Um, I do, because well, let me, uh, let me... they're playing on my turf, okay? They're saying we want to recover the mentality of the founders, right? Okay, let's play. Well, there were some opinions among the founding fathers about originalism, too, right? I mean, there's an idea that this document, what's the great Thomas Jefferson line about fitting an, a, a grown-up with child's clothes or yeah, whatever? Yeah, that, that it, to, to make you listen to my words and then try to act in accord would be as if a grown man were to put on the, the, the coat of a child. child. Yes. Right. Jefferson wanted to have the new constitution every 21 years. Every generation had to be sovereign. Oh, the founders together would be amazed that we haven't redone the Constitution. Madison in 1829 said that, it, it, that he was asked how long he thought the Constitution would last. He said, at most, 100 years. Just think in 1929, at the middle of the, the, uh, the, you know, the Great Crash. Oh, my God, Madison said it was. Um, although, if you say, well, let's redo the Constitution, it's impossible. Could, I mean, the reason the Constitution worked is he had 55 white guys gathered in the same place without the press and nobody else to interrupt them um, to, and did what they thought was right. We're now 325 million people. We insist on transparency correctly. We insist on racial uh, equality or racial um, representation. Um, I don't see how... I mean, you might be able to get us, you know, some sort of... I mean... I bet you, I, I bet you in this audience, I could take a show of hands. How many of you think we should do away with the Electoral College? There must be people from South Dakota here or something like that. May I just insert a question from the audience here because it belongs here? Was the Electoral College designed as a form of voter suppression? It is. I mean, think about this. North and South Dakota have four senators. North and South Dakota together have half the population of Los Angeles. Think about that. California gets two. I mean, but that's part of the great bargain that was struck at the convention between the states and the federal government. It represents space as well as population. Um, there was, a and there was a chance to end the Electoral College in 1913. It was seriously considered at the same time they voted to do away with, to, to, to now create direct election of senators instead of the becoming from the state legislature. But they dropped it. I'd like to see that. The problem I have, and maybe you have this too, maybe you do too, I have a lot of great ideas about things that need to change, and absolutely none of them are possible. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about something else that's changed because I know it's I know it's something that you like to like to think about. The whole idea of American exceptionalism means today something completely different. If, yeah, I do this with Washington, and, and I'm glad you asked that. The reason I, she asked that is because I told her to ask that. And um, what was but, a, what was a city on a hill compared to what Reagan thinks a city on a hill was? Oh, right. That's good. That's good. Yeah, the original city on a hill is from a speech by. 
um, John Winthrop, on the good ship Arabella on the way from England to New England in 1630. And he's describing a medieval society that's uh, divided and stratified by class in which your job is to find what, what station God had intended for you to inhabit and then inhabit that as well as you could. It's not a modern society. But the idea of city on a hill is, an, is a form of American exceptionalism. In, in some ways, it's, you know, it's the, the Israeli view of chosen people and New England were the American Israeli, Israelites. Um, in, more, in some terms, it's like one of Reagan's people said that Ronald Reagan believed it meant that God takes care of women and children in the United States of America. Um, but that in a more secular, contemporary sense, that when the Cold War ended and the, the United States was the sole superpower, the presumption was that we were the poster child for the liberal order and that in Francis Fukuyama's phrase, which is almost designed to anger the gods, it was the end of history. Like, we had the, we had the roadmap to the future, the liberal state, you know, representative government, separation of church and state, rule of law, free markets. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. And there's a reason. Washington didn't use the word exceptionalism. He just said unique, that there are certain unique conditions that we were enjoyed by the Americans when America came into existence as an independent place. And it wasn't a nation in 76. It doesn't become a nation until 87, 88. It's still a confederation of sovereign states. Lincoln's wrong in the first sentence of the, of the Gettysburg Address. Uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth in this country a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a confederation of sovereign states provisionally united to win the war and then go their separate ways, which is what they did. Um, that's where Sam thought we were supposed to go, too, Sam Adams. Um, but where did, how did I get to this? <laughs> um, I went off on the side here. Where were we headed? American exceptionalism. Oh, yes. We had all these advantages. We came into existence just when the Enlightenment was happening, but we had these oceans that separate us, mostly the Atlantic that separates us from Europe. And then we had this continent. Now, at that time, we only had a third of the continent, but Washington, you know, why do you think they call it the Continental Army or the Continental Congress? It's going to go all the way. It's like a trust fund, an enormous trust fund. No other nation is born with this size of a trust fund. But for that reason, we shouldn't, precisely because of our, our unique origins, we shouldn't expect our, our way of governing and our way of organizing society to be easily transportable to other nations lacking our history and our advantages. In Washington's here, the first thing was, don't expect the French Revolution to produce uh, the same kind of thing ours produced. Adams used to talk to Jefferson saying, yeah, Latin America will never become uh, a society like ours because they're Catholics down there. And uh, they have hierarchical value systems and stuff. And I mean, and my take on this is, one thing we should learn is that it's probably not a good idea to presume that Jeffersonian seeds of democracy can survive and flourish in the sands of the Middle East. That the Muslim world is not ready for us and is not, that's not fair to them, I guess, but that those are fundamentally different places. And so we have to recognize that 
our presumption that our way of life is, is what everybody wants um, is not true. But that's sort of a baked-in paradox, isn't it, that we are a republic with imperialist ambitions in some way, right? Yeah, and think about that. See, can a republic be an empire? A republic is based on the principle of consent. An empire is based on the principle of coercion. And that Washington faces this with the Native American problem. He tries to solve it. I won't go into the great detail, but he's trying to create uh, homelands east of the Mississippi to avoid Indian removal because he believes that to remove the Indians and to essentially create genocide in slow motion is a repudiation of the values of the American Revolution. People, when I would, I wrote a book on Washington called His Excellency, and I was out there at the same time the Iraq War was going on. And people would ask, well, what would Washington do about Iraq? And I answered honestly, look, Washington is busy being dead, okay? <laughs> he, he can't talk to you. We don't have time machines, and even if we did, he wouldn't know what you're talking about. He wouldn't know where Iraq was. So then somebody said, well, suppose we told him, you know? And he was back, and then you told him this. Then what would he say? And I said, he would say, how did we get to be the British? Um, because that wouldn't make it wouldn't make sense to him. He couldn't understand that, and and it's one of the it's one of the liabilities we carry as the first republic or democratic superpower. It's difficult for us, and the the way it will manifest itself. We're not going to do what Britain did. We're not going to stay in Egypt for a hundred years, or we're not going to stay in Afghanistan for a hundred years. We're gone, baby. I mean. The, the, the will on the patience rate is, 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 you know, the British didn't stay in South Africa for 100 years because of some Kiplingesque commitment to the white man's burden. They stayed for the diamonds, okay? For the di- There's no longer that kind of financial reward for being a superpower. There's no colonies. We can't have colonies. Remember when Trump said, we'll take the oil, and everybody said, are you out of your mind? We can't do that. Um, and so there's lots of reasons why we're going to be a superpower that's not British in its, in its reliability. On the other hand, I think, and I'll, you know, this is too long, it is inevitable that we're going to be a superpower, no matter what Trump says and no matter what Trump does. We're in a globalized world that isolation is impossible. We're the biggest economy by far. We're the most powerful military by real far. The most more powerful than the British Army or the Roman legions or whatever in their heyday. Um, and um, t- instead of trade wars being easy to win, nobody wins in trade wars ever. Um, so Trump, in this sense, is a comet that's going to evaporate in the atmosphere, and we're going to go back to being. But we have to say, these are the things we can do. These are the things we can't do. Mm-hmm say something uplifting sooner or later. Um, let me ask you one more thing, just given the date on the calendar, and then we'll go to the audience questions. Um, the fi- first five presidents, how did the first five presidents feel about campaigning for office? Oh, prostitution. They wouldn't, they would not camp. Nobody campaigned. So what we're about to experience, what we've been experiencing, is completely not something the founders ever anticipated. None right? of them would run for office in 21st century America. 
and the idea, the very ideas of liberal and conservative obviously don't hold up. So what was the, was it, how do you, how do you even begin to translate those terms back into the 18th century? Is it basically a take on federal government versus state government? That's the constitutional version of it, federal versus state. Um, one is, is the government us or them? Jefferson would say them. Adams, Hamilton, Madison uh, would say us. Well, Madison says us until 1790. Then he starts saying the other thing. There's a couple of different Madisons. Um, another way is the people or the public. The public, res publica, republic. What we really need is republicanism. And you know, if you do it, you know what they'll call it? Socialism. They'll call it socialism. But, but as Casey Stengel said, you can look this up, all right? Socialism is government ownership of the means of production. It's the elimination of private property. Almost nobody's a socialist in America. Let me give you this question. What we, what we want is regulated capitalism, in a way that, that, that creates a public interest at the center of the middle class. This is one of your questions from the audience. Once upon a time, our political parties represented opposite ideals. Now that the Republican Party is the Trump Party, is the future of the Democratic Party socialism? Not according, no, not, it's, I think the progressive wing of the party is in favor of, now they uh, say they're in favor of uh, Medicare for all, and um, free college tuition, stuff like that. Um, pardon me? Healthcare. Yes, if I didn't say that, I, I should say that. I said, didn't I say Medicare for all? Yeah, and, um, uh, and those will be described as socialism, but it's not, okay? Um, it's, there should be a bargain between capitalism and democracy. We agree that the market should be free to generate wealth. This is like my deal with the guy handling the gun, right? We agree that the market should be free. You have a right to own a gun. You agree that the wealth needs to be distributed in order to assure a robust middle class. That's what the New Deal was. If you look at a graph, from 1930 to 1980, that's the, that's the golden age. If you're going to go make America great again, that's the time to go back to. Like it really is. By the way, you know who invented the, the phrase America first? I thought it was Lindbergh in the late 30s. It's the Klan. Okay. It's the Klan in the 1920s, the second Klan. Yeah, I just found that out. I would have put it in the book, but I didn't. Have <laughs> Aren't you glad you came tonight? Um, how do you feel? How do you think the founders would feel about people in Congress working what seems like against the will of the people they are working for? Um, they would be extremely upset. This is not what we intended, and they would be the people that are saying that that's the situation are not exaggerating. The vast majority of the members of Congress do not regard the voters as their major constituents. It's their donors. It's a real plutocracy. If you come into Congress, they tell you to spend at least half your time working on 
raising money for yourself and for the party. And their highest priority, this is what would really kill the founders, is to be reelected, right? And so, like, you have people saying, I'd really love to vote against, let's say, Kavanaugh, but I can't do it. What the hell do you mean you can't do it? I mean, well, if I do it, I won't be reelected. So what? That's the reason we put you there. I mean, and the founder, for, for them, John Adams thought the best thing he ever did was lose, lose the election of 1800 um, by refusing to go to war with France. And, um, and it cost him the election. He said, great. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether there's, you could count on uh, one hand the number of congressmen or senators who would be prepared to do anything that, vi- that uh, endangers their reelection. And what's supposed to be that way? Any good questions? Really good questions. You've spoken about the moral arc um, in terms of integration and race. You ready for this? How do you feel about patriarchy and the acceptance of women as equals? I like I like the end of patriarchy. Um, I mean, and the I mean, I spent forty years teaching at all women's college. And um, I think that you need good work. You need something positive from me now. Please. Okay. We all do. All right. The tsunami's already on the way. Women women are coming to get you, whether you believe it or not. (laughs) They dominate higher education. Many of these schools, you don't know this, they have to have affirmative action programs to balance the genders in the class, okay? Women dominate medical school, law school, and graduate school. All those things, right now. They do. Um, And some of them, my students are out there, they're going to make life miserable for you guys in some... But uh, that's just a natural resource that is on the way. And there's no stopping it. Um, it's talented, it's energetic, it's numerous. Um, it's a quiet revolution, and, um, and um, it's, it's uh, and, I mean, patriarchy is a term that means a variety of different things to different people, but certainly the, the sense that, um, that women are, in any sense of the term, inferior, will be dead and gone um, in the next 20 to 30 years. Joe, you said something uplifting. Um, why are there a couple of different James Madisons, asks a member of the audience. Because Madison isn't consistent in a logical sense of the term, but he is in a political sense of the term. Whenever he sees the political seesaw going too, too high, he jumps on it to try to balance it out. Um, and so in the 1780s, he sees the Confederation about to fall apart, and he jumps onto a national side and favors a strong national government that has unequivocal power over the states. He backs off that during the Publius years in the Federalist Papers because he knows if he ever got that, it would have never been ratified in the first place. And he becomes an advocate of a more ambiguous relationship between federal and state power. Then Jefferson comes back, and he falls under Jefferson's spell, and he becomes a states' rights guy. And then at the end, after Jefferson is dead, 
and you get the uh, nullification crisis, and John C. Calhoun is citing Madison in favor of the right to secede from South, for South Carolina, he says, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant, or Mr. Jefferson meant. And then they quote Jefferson, and then he said, well, Jefferson sometimes says strange things. You know, Mr. Jefferson says some strange things. So he's, um, he's not logically consistent, but his inconsistency is based on a commitment to balance. And, and while you're on that, do you want to mention Madison's take on the Supreme Court, the, the inaptly named Supreme Court? Yeah, well, I... I I did a piece for the uh, Wall Street Journal. This was before the Kavanaugh hearings really got vicious. Um, uh, if you read the Constitution, and if you read the debates over the, the discussion of the judiciary, the one thing I, that's clear is that the founders did not intel this, in, intend the Supreme Court to be supreme. They thought that the sovereign branch in the determination of domestic policy should and must be Congress. And that the way it's been happening over the last 50 to 80 years, especially since Brown, the Supreme Court has been the court of last resort, if you will, the ultimate arbiter of most of our controversial domestic issues. And it's for that reason that most everybody including Donald Trump himself, says that the, the, the most important power of the president is to nominate appointees to the, to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is furthest from the people, and they don't want that to be the place that, that sets the political agenda for the nation. The notion that five people can decide whether or not a woman can, has control over her own body or not, or... Um, uh, whether a president can be impeached is, um, is not something they think is a good idea. Since and I think it's now clear beyond a reasonable doubt that our mythical view of the Supreme Court, you know, which is it's a functional myth that somehow once they put those robes on, they levitate above the political <laughs> process, you know, and then... You know, and then we can trust them to be in the direct pipeline to the founders, who themselves, of course, have tongues of fire over their heads and are speaking directly to God. And um, all that, obviously, is, you know, childish stuff. Since you're on the subject of the court, someone asks, do lifetime appointments still make sense now that people live for so long? <laughs> no, I mean... I don't know about you, but I thought about this when I was watching the Senate hearings. Some of those old guys. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not a youngster, but let me tell you. It's like, are you kidding? Are you still there? <laughs> um, now, I think there should be term limits. Uh, again, this is one of these ideas that I think is a great idea and has absolutely no chance of passing. I think there will be 20-year term limits for senators and Supreme Court justices. And, um, and that, now of course, they'll just go to K Street after that if they make their, but, but um, that we need to keep fresh blood flowing in and out and in a way that it doesn't exist right now. I, that's what I think. Jefferson would really agree with this. He's one seat, you know, a good thing about Jefferson, okay? Yeah. <laughs> How are the, this is a question you're not going to get anywhere else. How would the founders have advised um, 
Prime Minister May in terms of Brexit in view of issues like immigration? Well, I'm trying to pop it, inhabit their mentality here. Um, if they were being political, they would say, go for Brexit so you'll lose power. Because we, we want, you know, like we've fought a war against you and we're still worried about you um, hovering over our borders. If they were able to think in terms of expanding or continuing British power because, in their view, we're going to live under the protection of the British fleet for a century, okay, which we do, then they would say, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, you're, you're retreating. You're, and, um, uh, and obviously, Trump is an American version of Brexit. Is that it? Nope. The founders ratified the Constitution with the understanding that it could be amended as the nation evolved. We've had 27 amendments passed since the Constitution was ratified, the last time being in 1992. In our hyper-partisan era, do you think the Constitution will be able to continue evolving with the nation? That's a good question. I don't want to put my pessimistic hat on. Right now, it's impossible to pass a constitutional amendment. They intended it to be hard. But because of the partisanship in the Congress that's non-negotiable, almost nothing that has anything, you know, like if you had a constitutional amendment for, you know, everybody gets free free cash every day or something, then they, maybe you could pay. But nothing that is substantively controversial can possibly pass. And I think that's a problem because they have presumed that there would be civility and comity, a willingness to argue and, and to negotiate. And that has now, I mean, somewhere over the last 20 years, I think the, the, the person who started this was Newt Gingrich. The person who started this was the contract with America. Thing. And um, That's where you would locate the end of comedy? Is that yes. True? Yes. Comedy, not comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Although comedy is over comedy too. Comedy becomes and, uh, necessary yeah. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only place you can hear good stuff now is on, you know, the com- you know the comedians are the most interesting people, uh, in terms of politics. Well, you know, when you when you talk about that, there, there are so many disagreements among the founders themselves. Um, Jefferson would probably have given us anarchy if left to his own devices, right? Hamilton would have given us some kind of autocracy. Who, who's the one person whom you could have entrusted this task to if you were... I mean, is it Jimmy Madison and all his multifaceted splendor? What task? Getting things done? Getting, putting a document together that could live and breathe and accommodate some kind of change. Washington is the great, great guy. But Washington wouldn't work in this world. He'd be big, tall. He's a sort of Liam Neeson kind of guy, you know. And, um, but he's boring. And, um, uh, and his stature depended on being the guy who won the war. Um, the guy, you know, if I said, you know, the guy who could come back and probably most understand us 
is your guy. I love that. Benjamin Franklin. Um, if you bring Adams into a mall, Adams go, oh, I told you it was going to be hell in a handbasket here. And you bring, you know, bring uh, Franklin. He said, oh, good. Let's now see how we can sell this and that. I mean, Franklin's also the kind of guy that would understand climate change. And, um, and um, he's more adaptable. And if, if you're looking for somebody who knows how to put words on paper, he's even better than Jefferson. Mm-hmm. He is. But, um, and he was the grandfather amongst the fathers. I think he was born about the same time as Jonathan Edwards. He's essentially old enough to be most of their fathers. Yes. Yeah. 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 Here's your last question from the audience. I think is what my cue is telling me. The 52 senators that voted for Kavanaugh represented 44% of the population. Is the Senate obsolete? In the sense that you're talking, yes. If you mean, the Senate was designed to be undemocratic. It was designed, one of the reasons Madison was devastated at the end of the convention and thought they had lost was that he lost the battle for equal participation, you know, that both branches of Congress should be popularly elected in, in a popular way. And when he lost that, he thought that was fatal because it still let the states, and it's partly still a confederation of states. And so the Senate is the continuing remnant of that compromise. Um, I mean, if you put the inequality on the Senate with gerrymandering and voter suppression, no matter what we do, we can't get a majority. Um, and, but the Senate, I mean, I say, like, we'd, we'd have to do a constitutional amendment. And what would it be that, that, that the, the, the states would have either four or between four, three, two, or one representative? New York would get four. California would get four. Wyoming, Wyoming Vermont, North and South Dakota, Rhode Island— one, and then people in between on population, so that there would be some rough connection between representation and population. Um, I think that's a good idea, and um, it has no chance. And, <laughs> and on that note, Joe would love to sign copies of his brilliant new book <laughs> for you all. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.